When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. My name is Michael Walker, and I am here with my good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. How are you? Always good. And the end of the year trudges ever so closer as the publishers struggle to get their games out before the big end of the year awards. And we, I have been playing away. We have been playing away. And we're going to talk about these games that we have played. For me, it's less of a trudge and more of a death mosey. A, de- a death mosey. My mind is very much in death mosey. September was a death mosey. October was a death mosey. November looks to be a death mosey with more rain. Who knows what December will bring? But wait, first, the game we reviewed exactly one year ago, the Eurus Tainted Grail, The Fall of Avalon. This, I think, is an important landmark because I was actually doing some looking over the past episode notes and descriptions, looking at what we've done over the course of the past months. In my head, we had an established podcast, and then there's the pandemic, and the pandemic introduced a series of sometimes short-term, sometimes medium-term restrictions. We have recorded as many episodes since the pandemic than we had prior to the start of the pandemic. Have I blown really? your mind? My mind, consider it blown. I mentioned this because Tainted Grail was the last game we reviewed before the pandemic hit. And at the time, what we said was, we've only played a small number of games of the campaign. We then went under lockdown, so we weren't able to keep playing the game. And we said it had its problems. It had those standard gamey elements of a lot of these narrative games that we felt, that effectively felt like, now you have to go gather the resources. Like, okay, fine. We have to go pile up enough crap so that the story can continue. But we liked the story, and we liked a lot of the elements, and so we intended to go back to it. I'm still there mentally. What about you? Yeah, for sure. I'm looking forward to going back to it because it had that those really cool wicker statues and in order to like maintain your presence in an area you sort of had to keep them maintained to keep away the evil i like that whole mechanic you know the the whole sort of seventh continent you know angle was getting a little old by then but still you know looking up the cards and laying out you know 
Now we need card number 756. <laughs> okay, one second here. Let me just cycle through these cards. But the story, the story seemed to be developing very nicely. You know, interesting, different arcs you could follow. I am, hopefully, one day we can get back to it. And I think it's a testament to the quality of the narrative and the quality of the world, build, world building that I still remember a lot of what was going on. It's the same position that I'm in the Legacy of Dragonhold. Like, we, we've started and abandoned lots of campaign games. We've complained about campaign games in the past in the Kickstarter. But Legacy of Dragonhold and Tainted Grail, both for different reasons, are both games that I want to come back to. And I can still remember little details, little plot points, elements of the world, elements of the characters that are pulling me back to the world. And, of course, it is precisely because the there was enough texture there for me to recall it that I think is, is one of the reasons why we're going to make the effort to go back to it. Yeah, and plus there's like one this new thing that these campaigns are doing that uh, they're making you like the B squad, as opposed to making you like the central hero, the savior of the whole universe, the all powerful. This is like okay, well they've all died. Time for <laughs> B team. Yes, out you go. It's a fallen, ruined world in which no one has any expectations of you, and you're desperately scrabbling. And honestly, totally, those are the kind of stories that I like sometimes. And I don't like power fantasies. They don't do anything for me narratively. And so I really appreciated the Tainted Grail leaned away from that, at least in this in the campaign, that the, you know, the base game campaign, because there are tons of additional campaigns and such. And who knows if we'll have any enthusiasm for those. So this is a good swag segue to go into, and that was Tainted Grail, the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. Sort of segues nicely into the games that we played this week. Let's talk about Cine Tempora. And so this is another giant campaign game with the miniatures being so fantastic and so great but the rules being the reverse <laughs> so so terrible the it seems as though the concepts were there everything was there it's just i think it, it just really mu very much lacked the play testing it just wasn't played enough they the the kickstarter got away with them there's so many extra characters that just don't work together that don't work in the game at all hmm. extra villains that you know they just threw the cards in and when they you know randomly come out they just don't gel well with the game the way the game works but we are struggling through it i think we're going to play it a few more times and just and then re reassess if we want to continue because there are elements of the game that are fantastic there's a whole world out there there's these you know amassing resources to upgrade your gear and the timing mechanisms and the, the, the sort of like the world map that you get to go out and explore. All the elements are there. I just wish they had locked the rules down a little smoother. I have a bone to pick with you, Mr. Walker, with respect to my past experience with Cine Tempora. You taught the game to me with a variant already baked in, right? With an optional rule already baked in. No, I don't think it's optional. They they came back afterwards and said it's optional not to play with it. In oh, my opinion, my apologies. I misread I'd what was going I'll, on I'll, on board game. Well, games. I'll have to I'll have to reread the rule book and see how they they present it. But I would rather play with the reaction rules. The whole thing is, you know, you're on the wheel, and if you're mar if you do an action that makes you bypass an enemy, then they get to react. And if they do react, they can only. I like this system. A lot of systems do this, where they can only react to the person that is acting. Unlike there's like there was an old uh, Starship Troopers game that you know these creatures just continually reacted to you know whatever was happening around them and it was crazy. But this is they can only react to the person that's acting, and then once they've acted, they get a token on them and they don't get to go again. 
And then when their turn does come around, their actual turn, then they just advance and they do nothing and they may react again after that. But I think it's fine. It does slow the game down a little bit more, but it makes it more interesting instead of this they go, we go, they go back and forth. Sure. My objection to it was that it felt like the based on just how course the timing system was, the overwhelming majority of actions take a relatively small number of timing. We're not talking about, well, I do this three time unit action versus I do this eight time unit action or something. It wasn't there wasn't a, a high degree of, of granularity with respect to the timing. As a consequence, the enemy's actions overwhelmingly were reactions. It seemed like the overwhelming preponderance of, of enemy reactions uh, actions were reactions. I also couldn't help but notice that Huey had some problems with the balance between ranged attacks and melee attacks, which is a very, very common bugbear. I mean, a game no less great than Heroescape itself was very poorly balanced around the, the balance between melee and ranged. So it's hard to be too judgmental. But nonetheless, there you have it. True. After going through, we've talked to a lot of people in the in the Board Game Geek forums and talked about trying to see what we're doing wrong with the Close Assault, and apparently it's just garbage all around. Do not take a Close Assault. <laughs> Character, stick okay. with the with the ranged, and you'll be good to go. <laughs> and so that was further ruminations on Cine Tempora by Ludus Magnus Studios. We played another game of Ultimate Railroads. This is sort of an insta-Eurus, of course, but this is because Louis was uh, a fan of the game. He felt that having gotten some internalization about the systems, namely the balance between how rails are expanded and industry progresses, he wanted to give another crack at it. And he had a fine time, and, and indeed, it was nice to have a, a solid reinforcement of our uh, previous impressions. One of the things that I commented on in the context of Ultimate Railroads in our review was that it's a perfectly fine game, and I'd be happy to knock it out on Board Game Arena, but in other contexts, I probably would give it a pass. And sure enough, it settles into the same kind of routines. I mean... Uh, there's a reason why they felt the need, I think, for so many expansion modules, because once you've played around with the basic track systems, you can easily fall into the same rhythms, which is not necessarily a crippling downfall, but it certainly makes you feel like you've been there before. It's like, okay, well, I push this rail marker up here. That unlocks this bonus. Okay, now I need to push this other rail marker over there. And I, I definitely was getting a lot of deja vu in that sense. And once German Railroads gets implemented into Board Game Arena, into the Ultimate Railroads adaptation, I'd certainly be willing to return to that because that seems to be, again, a, a, an excellent source of variety and one of the best ways to experience it. But it was nice to enjoy a game so close after reviewing it. Very often we have a sense of burnout after reviewing a game. And so that just reinforces the sense that it's a very pleasant game and I don't really feel any need to own it. 100% agree. I wouldn't even want to think about getting good at it. Like if we're already having to the computer counts out our you know 400 to 500 points if Ugh. people actually get at it i could see you getting up to like seven to eight hundred points a game and having to keep track of that in real life would be ridiculous or we could play for money say ten dollars a point yes <laughs> we brought the siege of rune dark back to the table we streamed this with brew we once again did not complete it, so that is great. I love it that awesome. it is difficult, and uh, this is just on normal mode. There's different modes you can play, so this is sort of a Reiner Knit. Not sort of. Say. This is yeah, it's not. It's a complete Reiner Knitzi. It is sort of a tower defense game. <laughs> you have a hand of cards, and you're moving your dwarf around. You're crafting weapons. You're trying to improve. It's a deck builder where you're trying to improve your deck and dig your way to freedom. Very enjoyable experience. The Siege of Rundara. I think it's Siege of Rundar, actually. I can pronounce stuff however I want. 
Fair enough. On the topic of pronunciation, which normally is a bugbear in this podcast, I just want to give a shout out to all pronunciations being legitimate pronunciations. Much love to my Northern California people who devoice and say dwarfs instead of dwarves. You are seen, you are recognized, you are heard and valued. I played another game of Furnace. Furnace is the almost comically stereotypical Euro game where first you auction things and then you run your engine. And what it lacks for in novelty, it certainly makes up for in simplicity and approachability. And Furnace, again, I I keep mentioning this every time, but I really like it. The fact that you want to lose bids, I think, really makes the game. Because if you ever lose a bid, you get what's called compensation. And sometimes the compensation is better than the actual card. So sometimes you desperately want the card and sometimes you want compensation. And I think really one of the techniques to improve your flexibility is making bids where you don't care whether you win or lose. You're happy if you win because you get the card. You're also happy if you lose because the compensation is okay. Ultimately, I wonder about the overall horizons of Furnace because the what I like about it, I think, also might limit its shelf life because there's only three different resources and fundamentally at the end of the day you either have uh, cards that give you resources cards that convert resources or things that turn it into points and the deck doesn't offer what i would call what i would say is a tremendous degree of variety once you get a fundamental point engine you just kind of pump that as much as possible and if you get other cards later on in the game it's mostly just to supplement what you're already doing it's like okay well at the end of round 1 i had two pieces of iron left over that i wasn't able to plug into my engine oh, okay well i guess i should buy a card that turns iron into points and now you're earning more points in round 2 than you were in round 1 and that's fine it's just one of the reasons why i don't really like cube pushers this this to me is very much in the same vein as century spice road but i'd much much rather play furnace as opposed to something like century spice road to me the king of cube pushers is of course severe confluence but that's a very different kind of game because it's not primarily about the cube conversion it's primarily about the overall economic environment created by trading because i think that if you're going to have cube conversion you should really append it to something interesting whether it's something like aggressive and nasty worker placement like Kalis 1303 does or whether it's something like auctions like furnace or whether it's something like trading negotiation like sidereal confluence but that all that having been said furnace is a delightful game in a, in a relatively small package and a very very quick play time and very very approachable rule set and so if you're interested in something that travels well both in terms of physical form and in terms of audience i think furnace is an easy recommendation at least for a few plays but i don't think it's going to be revolutionary it feels like a throwback sometimes in a, in a very nice way, but sometimes also in terms of my enjoying it but not wanting to seek it out necessarily. I seek it out largely because of its flexibility. And so that's kind of a double-edged sword and kind of a backhanded compliment, but I've had a good time with my plays at Furnace, and I would happily play it again. That's by Ivan Lashin and put up by Hobby World this year. Now, did you play with the advanced rules or or the baby, baby <laughs> poo-face rules? <laughs> You know, you know, Walker, you're right. Uh, maybe I should, I should actually <laughs> say, well, you know, I don't really see lots of horizons. Maybe I should just step up and try the more difficult version. What Walker's referring to is the version where when you buy a card, you have to permanently slot it into the order of your economy. And so there's that additional level of pre-planning. You're entirely right. I should be more fair and not say, it's like, well, I think I've seen more or less all there's, no, I, mean, I, I just mean that I, I would appreciate a little bit more card variety. Uh, maybe a little bit more novelty in that sense. That level of pre-planning, every time I've taught Furnace has been the same experience. I teach people how to play the game, and meanwhile, around about round two or three, I say, oh, by the way, 
there's a variant whereby you can where you have to pre-slot the order of how your economy runs every round. And then they look at me like I've suggested ingesting poison. And <laughs> <laughs> so you're right. I, I should give it a try for people who are primarily interested. But again, I pull out Furnace for some quick, approachable Euro conversion fun, not a sort of panic-inducing preloaded decision about where to slot in the thing that gives you two stone or one oil. Uh, I am curious to try it. Maybe someday. Good point. <laughs> I, I do love the fact that it's called compensation as well. Cause it's, you know, the fact that you do want it sometimes when people look down at the board and it's like, Oh, straight up metal. Yeah. And everyone wants like, I want to be compensated. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the other game we streamed was Brew, and this is designed by Steve Torres and put out by Pandasaurus Games. This is a game I was drawn to because of the, the art style and the fact that it's a dice worker placement type game, but it's very one-dimensional. It's like I put a stone on the stone, and there's a picture of a mushroom on the stone, so I get the mushroom. Now I'm going to use this mushroom to brew a potion, hmm. right? If it just had a little more sort of – there's a little bit with, uh, you know, training the pets, and they sort of give you – you know, extra abilities, but, you know, if you could get combos with the pets or combos with your potions or something, if it just had another layer, then there would be a lot more there. It just seems awfully, like I said, one-dimensional as you're playing. You know, you're brewing potions, you're getting goods to brew the potions, end of story. And then there's the problem where even when I teach it to new players, they sort of look at the one character and say, well, that seems broken, that guy is overpowered, my guy, I'm not even using his ability, this guy is using his ability every turn. Anyway, I digress. Would that character happen to be the character you gave yourself, Walker? I I don't know what you're talking about, Mark. <laughs> I know I didn't I didn't give I did not take this character. I don't take that character anymore. No, not this time. <laughs> okay. He the characters were out randomly and thankfully I did not get him. So that was Brew. Everyone still enjoyed it. The art and you know sort of collecting little Pokémon style, you know, collecting little animals and and letting them retire to the little, you know, little Farms upstate areas, little farms upstate. Very nice feeling. Doesn't overstay its welcome. Has interesting abilities, but overall, a little too light. And that's Brew. I played a couple games of Baron Park back to back by Phil Walker Harding, published by Lookout a few years ago. On the topic of the charming artwork of Brew. I actually wish that Baron Park were a little bit more visually delightful. It's a game about a bear park, and what they've done is they've made the bear enclosures, I think, perhaps a little too realistic in that they're not chock-a-block with bears. I'm here to build a bear park, Walker. I want to see lots of bears. I don't want to have vanishingly small little squiddles that I can kind of interpret to sort of be koalas. No, no, no. Bears all the time. Uh, furthermore, I still think that in the expansion, they should have had the optional rules where bears can sometimes get loose and start eating the patrons, but setting all that aside. I really like Baron Park. As far as tiling goes, I prefer shared board to individual boards, but if you're going to do individual boards, I think Baron Park still has enough competition for those high-value tiles. There's a shared pool of tiles from which you'll be drawing, and you only unlock tiles as you make certain placements. And especially in a two-player game, which is how I played Baron Park this time, I do feel the pressure to get to those tiles before the other player does. I feel as the player count goes up, it doesn't make the game outlast its welcome because it's still a very, very quick game, but I feel that the player interaction feels a little bit more muted because the pool is larger, and so the competition doesn't feel as intense. 
I thoroughly enjoy Baron Park. I think it's delightful and whimsical and very easy to understand. And it's got interesting tempo trade-offs and considerations about how to manage your tile supply at the same time. Because it's not just a question of drawing a random tile or anything of that sort. This precious little randomness. It's mostly a question of I need to decide what trade-offs I'm going to do in order to get what tiles into my supply. And I really, I've always appreciated that aspect of Baron Park. We played without the expansion. So sadly, we didn't have any monorails. The monorails are visually delightful. Sad face. It, it is. Look, we we're we're a we're a poor, deprived city here in Vancouver. We don't have the 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 ridiculous lavish wealth that you have over in Kingston that everyone knows about. And so I had to play an unexpanded copy of Baron Park. And you always complain about the setup of Baron Park. I don't think it's that bad. It's you played two player enough <laughs> to get like four tiles in a two player game. And you and you didn't have the expansion, so you had no other tiles to mess around with. So, but yeah. you have to put out this. You always have to put out a specific subset of tiles. And we have to sort out all the statue tiles. If you're playing with four players, all you need to do is worry about the order, and all the tiles go out. And did you play with achievements? Yes. Okay. Well, we'll <laughs> look. Given how quick the game is, I will absolutely grant you that the setup is rather tedious. But at the end of the day, it's still a very pleasant game, and I don't mind setting up Baron Park. I don't feel that the effort required at the outset overwhelms the benefit you get on the back end. So I still think Baron Park's a delightful, very a very approachable entry-level tiling game. And it's not visually ugly, make no mistake. I just wish they really should have leaned in. There should be I should be drowning in bears, Walker. I shouldn't have to squint to see bears when playing Baron Park. That's my only salient critique at this particular moment. Super easy to teach, right? It's like you put a tile on an orange thing, you get an orange tile. It's it's not rocket science. Nice and easy to teach. And the scoring, in fact, in when I explained the game, I neglected to explain how scoring worked. And I realized about halfway through the game, it's like, oh, wait, sorry. I need to explain how scoring works. And the guy looks at me and he says, I think I get it. <laughs> because <laughs> the tile with the eight on it, it's worth eight points. And the tile with the four on it, it's worth four points, and that's it. <laughs> it's it's a toofy. So that's Baron Park by Phil Walker-Harding, Lookout Games from 2017. So Huey and I return to Destinies. This is a heavy, app-driven adventure game where you're scanning cards to tell the app what you have and how you want to assist your actions and... What I really this is put out by Lucky Duck Games, designed by Miguel Gaboski and Philippe Muski. And what I really love about Destinies is this success mechanism, Mark. It's like you have three different stats, and depending on how how good you are in these particular areas, you're going to have a number of tokens on the track. And then you roll these dice that are, you know, like one through four and a couple of other dice that have some successes and are one through three. And you'll have a pool and you'll roll them up and you'll have to, and it'll tell you how many successes you get. So if you've moved your little tokens down on the, on the track down far enough, then you'll get more successes the more dice you roll. It's just a very interesting system. You tell the app how many successes you got. It'll let you know what happened depending on how well you did. And I, I don't want to say too much about the missions because it has spoilers in it, but the story is not terrible. 
each character has like two different storylines that they can kind of follow, which are totally different from the other characters. So you're both moving around the same map, sort of finding out certain things and you can get hints of what you need, what from what they're doing and they can, and vice versa. And you can follow each other around if you want, or, or take your own path because the maps are big enough. Very interesting. Same sort of thing, though. You're constantly looking through numbered cards. It's like, okay, make a marketplace of five cards. You need these six cards. You're shuffling through the decks, trying to find all these different numbers. But other than that, very interesting. And we have one mission to go, and I'm looking forward to it. I got to say, despite the fact that I never tried Destinies, I'm getting a very positive impression from it, given that it is A, app-driven, and B, narrative campaign based and those are two things that don't necessarily have immediate appeal for either of us and you keep going back to it month after month and so that's got to be saying something well one i want to get it finished and two like i said i i story is not fantastic but it is Ah. interesting um the fact that it i don't understand why you even need the board game because it's so heavily app driven all you're doing is sort of putting tokens on a map and a couple figures just to sort of track what map piece you're on because you don't actually input that information on the app. Right. But you just, you could click it, you know what I mean? But reminds me of just Descent legends of the dark to be frank. Exactly. Very much like that. And, but just the, the success system and the way your character works out and the, how your items work. I just really enjoy that part of it for sure. I wish they'd done something clever in Descent legends of the dark on that score, actually. So there you go. I played another game of War Chest. Now, I'm almost embarrassed, quite frankly, as a, as a professional cynic uh, for my enthusiasm for the work of David Thompson and his occasional design partner, Trevor Benjamin. This is, of course, the design team that gave us the Undaunted series, uh, whose latest entry of reinforcements I am awaiting with considerable salivation. But of their catalog, and of David Thompson's catalog in particular, he of the Valiant Defense series, as well as Europe Divided, and a whole bunch of other stuff... War Chest has always been the offering of theirs that I've liked the least. And we talked about it when it for, uh, shortly after it first came out. And we felt that it very often led to a quasi-stalemate situation. Or at the very least, a drawn-out attritional fight. Didn't really let lead to a whole bunch of clever positioning so much as it did to a, a, a position where both parties were spent because their chips were dead. And we had some concerns with respect to how it leveraged bag building. Namely, you were end up in these positions where you had to leave units incredibly vulnerable, just hoping that you would draw the right chip on the next, on the next turn. Now, when this is because you've purchased the correct chips and therefore you're able to leverage the odds in your favor, I've got no problem with that. But again, when you have a highly attritional endgame and a lot of your chips are dead and you're just hoping for the lucky pull before your opponent has, eh, not a huge fan. So I played War Chest again. Same concerns manifest. If you've got a unit with four chips in its total pool, that's the entire pool that you can ever have, and let's say it's gotten to the mid-game and you've purchased all of them, if one of them is dead, and just one, a single casualty, now you're down to three. There's not a whole heck of a lot you can do with that. Either you leave a single chip on the board, and then you only ha- then you have two to cycle through your bag in order to activate the thing, well, then that gives you more flexibility for the activation, right? You're more likely to be able to move it around, do attacks and other things, but there's only one chip on the board. If I move my chip next to your your opponent chip, well, if you draw the attack or even have it in your hand already, you're just going to kill it. And then, yes, I have greater operational flexibility with my later activation, but I can't activate the thing because it's dead. On the other hand, I could bolster the unit, make it a stack of two chips, and now it won't just take one hit to remove it from the board, it'll take two. And now it's more beefy. But as a consequence, I only have one chip available to activate the thing. I'm only going to be able to move it 
and then let it sit there until I completely cycle through my entire set of chips, and then maybe later I'll be able... Anyway, these are the kind of trade-offs you very quickly end up in after a single casualty, or in the case of a four-chip unit, or two casualties in the case of a five-chip unit. And it just shows how quickly the game, for my tastes, leads to a kind of drawn-out attritional mess. And I like a lot about War Chest. I love the unit differentiation. I love the tactile appeal of how it deals with chips and the flexibility that that implies. I love the balance between how it feels like an abstract sometimes and how sometimes it feels a little bit more like a a positional war game. But honestly, it doesn't make me feel like it gets to leverage the clever maneuvers of either an abstract or of a positional war game precisely because of how fragile and plotting everything is. I haven't tried any of the expansions. I don't know if they fundamentally alter that that basic element, but the core of this idea, I think, was so much better executed than Undaunted. Because in Undaunted, the relationship between casualties and deck management allow for a much greater degree of subtlety and granularity, precisely because the supply is managed differently. And because in Undaunted, you have the ability to activate units with cards that are not of that unit in rare cases. Every time you pull an officer in Undaunted, sometimes they can then issue orders to troops independently of the cards that you have. And that additional level of flexibility really helps to blunt a lot of these criticisms. Anyway, so I was I was very pleased to go back to War Chest, but it made me wish that I was instead playing Undaunted. Because even when Undaunted is not at its best, namely when some of the scenarios are a bit iffy, because like any other scenario-based game, not all of them show the system to its best effect, I still felt that an iffy scenario in Undaunted is, is preferable to War Chest. So I have to say that in a stellar, stellar catalog from two very, very talented designers, War Chest remains, I think, one of their less good offerings. And so that was War Chest by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson, put up by AEG in 2018. Lastly for me... I got to play Gollum on Tabletop Simulator. This is a game by Simone Luciani, Virgilio Gigilli, and Famina Brassini. These these guys have a huge catalog. Marco Polo, Darwin's Journey that's coming out soon, Gollum that's come this is coming out soon. In this particular one, you're dropping a bunch of marbles down the chute and they're sliding out on these different rows that are associated with actions. And all the different marbles are colored as well. So when it's your turn, during a round, you're going to be taking two marble actions and what they call a rabbi action. So when you take a marble action, it matters where the marble is because that's the action you're going to take. It matters how many marbles are also in that row because that's going to tell you the power of that action. And the color of the marble is is going to matter because that will tell you which of your students you're going to move down the roads at the bottom. And this is before you even start your action mark. (laughs) Then you start your action, and then it's the typical, you know, you're going to cycle off 500 other things as you trigger this bonus and that bonus and the other bonus. So it's fairly crunchy, but it also seems very bloated. There's lots of things going on. Sometimes it's just too many things. It's like, well, I'm going to get the bonus here, but if I don't get the bonus, if I do it this way, and there's lots of things, lots of moving parts, could all be associated with the first play and the fact that it was on Tabletop Simulator. Who knows? I am looking forward to playing it again. It's very interesting. You're sort of uh, upgrading these golems as they move down the street. You try to, you have to keep your students close to them to keep control. You're, you're manipulating the, the marbles. You're, you're 
has this interesting passing mechanism where you can wait till the end of the round and then all the marbles go back in and you hope they go to the actions that you want. Then when the golems get to the end of the road, when two opposing golems get to the end, there's this huge golem combat thing. There isn't really, Mark, but I'm going to use that in my game explanations every time. <laughs> and, I'll, and I'm just going to say, we'll cover the rules for the combat when we get there. And then they're going to get their golems to the end of the street. And I'll say, no, I was, you know, there's no combat. It's nice. It's, it's going to be great. Anyway, Golem, looking forward to, to trying it again. It will be on Tabletop Simulator, I'm sure. The, the color palette they used and just the whole look of the game just... It's definitely a game I wanted to try, but not one that I'm overly interested in. And that is Gollum, put out by Cranio Creations. Finally for me, played some Micro Macro Crime City Full House. I have to say that this is one of the strangest uses of a license. Uh, I didn't see any Uncle Jesse, not even a Kimmy Gimbler, hardly any Olsen twins at all. I was going to say, were there twins maybe all, all over the place or something? I don't know. Not that I could see. Anyway... So this is just more micro-macro Crime City. I walked into the local gaming store, and I saw that they had a copy. I immediately grabbed it, and then someone asked me what the game was. And as per usual, I utterly failed to communicate its charm. Because I think micro-macro Crime City is one of those things you really have to experience in order to fully appreciate how well it's done. or And or because I'm just very bad at explaining it. I always explain it. It's like, well, imagine Where's Waldo, but with narrative and with some elements of detective work. And people are like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. And then I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. And so we busted out the copy, spread out the entire map, and my colleague was immediately like, look, look at what they're doing. I'm like, exactly. And so <laughs> grabbed us instantaneously, just like the other one did. So basically, this is just another map of Micro Macro with more cases. The only salient addition to the formula is net cases now have an age appropriateness recommendation. Cause that was what actually came up a couple of times when we were recommending micro macro to people and people would ask, is it appropriate for kids? And the answer is, well, it depends. I mean, some cases more than others. What's you, what are you comfortable having your kids consume? What age are we talking about? But now there's just an icon explaining how age appropriate the thing is. So it depends on whether or not this is, a hijinks caper of some ne'er-do-wells, in which case kids are fine with it, or this is a murder that was prompted by an extramarital affair, and it's like, eh, maybe less kid-appropriate. Uh, for some people. Again, I don't mean to judge anybody who has different standards with respect to what they expose their children to. But anyway, Micro Macro Crime City has won a whole bunch of awards, both from us and from other people. They're eminently well-deserved. Micro Macro Crime City Full House, I played three cases so far. They're definitely good quality. They require some intuitive leaps, some care Careful observation, some careful tracking, and have some lovely little reveals and elements of narrative that are buried in what is otherwise just looks like a pattern recognition challenge, but it is that and so much more. Micro Macro Crime City Full House, it is just as good as Micro Macro Crime City, and therefore, highest possible recommendation. I was hoping they were going to do something a little bit differently, but I guess just more is better. I was hoping that there was going to tie... A bunch of the missions together in this one like make it over a little bit more of an overarching story I, I, for someone whatever reason i thought that that's the oh, feel it had but i am very happy they not. don't as i've said many times and indeed in this episode i'm a little bit tired of narrative campaigns so i'm very very glad that it's still just a series of disconnected cases that you can approach individually and have a satisfying session so that is micro micro crime city full house by johannes sick and by pegasus spiel put out this year those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. 
So, Mark, Dungeon Bowl. It was the Games Workshop product years and years ago. They are putting it out again. So we're going to get an up-to-date version of Dungeon Bowl. Kind of exciting. I'm only excited because if it does well, then there'll be a video implementation. <laughs> and that's the one that I will play. What was Dungeon Bowl? Dungeon Bowl was a version of Blood Bowl, but it was in a dungeon. <laughs> and you only you only had to score one touchdown to win. Now, the problem with that is that you had to find the ball first. Oh, my goodness. You'd put, all these, you'd put all these plastic chests around this dungeon layout, and you had to run your players around, open up the chests, and the ball was hidden in one of the chests. And there was these teleporters that you would teleport your players all around. They're selling it this time as a sort of a, a little bit lighter version of Blood Bowl, sort of an introductory standalone type game. And it was tons of fun back when it was Dungeon Bowl. I'm hoping it lives up to its older name. That sounds wildly arbitrary and unfair and gratuitous. It's amazing. Okay. <laughs> At least it was back then. I'm sure <laughs> in my new mindset, I'll find it terrible. So we talked about this when it was initially announced. Horseless Carriage is going to be the next title offered by Splotterspellen, the idiosyncratic, iconoclastic Euro publisher of light rule sets, heavy decision-making Euro games, such hits as Food Chain Magnate and The Great Zimbabwe and Antiquity and Roads and Boats and other such things. And even though we're not huge fans of all their offerings, we're definitely a fan of a lot of their later offerings, and everything they do is at the very very least compelling and worth looking at. Anyway, they've opened up pre-orders for Horseless Carriage. It's going to be delivered sometime in the summer of 2022. They want all of your money, and then some more money on top of that after you've given them all their money, because again, Splatterspellin, that's how they roll, a very small company, and their products are very expensive. I've pre-ordered nonetheless, partially because of my enthusiasm, and partially because of my faith in them as a design team, but what I really am looking forward to is hidden inside all of Splatter's releases is a hint of whimsy. Not necessarily satire, and not necessarily going all the, all the way through, but just in terms of their product descriptions, and in terms of the worlds that their games present, there's usually some element of usually dark comedy. And we know very, very little about the game of Horseless Carriage so far, but it's set during the early ages of the automobile. And one of the things that they point to, and I hope this really gets manifested in gameplay, is back when cars were first being made, nobody knew what a car was supposed to have. Like, brakes were an optional feature in cars for some time. And we didn't know that there was a default kind of car. Like, if you look at how cars look now, they're sort of homogeneous to a large extent. At the time when they first came out, not so. Who knew? And so I hope that we have some sort of, like, alternate stories, some alternate reality versions of cars like well the dominant form of the automobile works this way now they have seven wheels and five horns deal with it that's horseless carriage by splatter sweet so plat hat games put out some games like uh mice and mystics and aftermath these were all by jerry harthorn and he also did also did a bunch of uh heroescape work as well that we oh. both like and now they're going to come out with a game called familiar tales and this is going to be another sort of heavily app-driven, campaign type game. But the artwork looks very interesting, and the the way that it seems... The the one... The preliminary news article said it was going to be some sort of deck builder. They don't mention that much in the what they've just released recently because the pre-orders have just worked, uh, started up, but there's not much gameplay information in this newest 
released, so maybe it's still, hopefully it's still a deck builder type thing, but lots of app stuff there, lots of visuals. You can go to their website and check it out. It is called Familiar Tales, coming out by Plat Hat Games. One of my preferred games that requires a very, very, very particular group of people of a very particular number, and thus I almost never get to play it, is Space Cadets Dice Duel, which is ideally a six- or eight-player game, relatively rules-heavy, real-time, directly confrontational team-based game where most actions result in failure. So needless to say, it's not the kind of thing that you pull out for your average family gathering or your regular game group. On Kickstarter right now is a game called Starfighters Rapid Fire by Alley Cat Games. And this seems to be, they have not claimed as such, this is my interpretation, this seems to be a more accessible, lighter version of Space Cadets Dice Duel in that it is a real-time space-fighty game where you roll dice, allocate them to various systems, and then at some point says stop, and then they run their program and people shoot at each other. And all of these are elements that remind me of Space Cadets Dice Duel, but if they can have that same level of appeal of the science fiction head-to-head action of rolling dice in real time and trying to make sure that you can get your ducks in a row and hope that you don't get outsmarted by what your opponent was doing while you literally could not watch them because you were too busy with your own dice, then I will be a very, very happy boy. It's a relatively economical package, especially as far as Kickstarters are concerned, and Alley Cat Games is a very small publisher, so I'm happy to support them on Kickstarter. That is Starfighters Rapid Fire on Kickstarter now. Yeah, I was totally looking at that today. It looks very interesting. I'm not sure if I'm up to a real-time dice chucker when it's uh, opposed against each other. As a, Says the man who's obsessed a, with Project Elite. cooperative. Okay, yeah, okay. Which is cooperative. This is this is versus and people want to win. And, and yes, anyway, we'll see. I'll be very interested to give it a try. Last for me, like I said, we streamed uh, Siege of Rundar. Sorry, Rundera. No, and, it's Rundar. Uh, Brew of Rundar. We streamed the Siege of Rundar and Brew and Destiny's last week. So we stream every Saturday morning at 10.30 a.m. Eastern. So coming up this Saturday, we're going to be playing Sentinels of the Multiverse and maybe Imperial Steam. Check us out. We play the game. No puppet shows. No songs. No dancing. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. That's just not how we do's. <laughs> yes, our, our dancing and puppet shows are reserved for our OnlyFans page. Finally, we are going to be off next week. There's not going to be an episode a week from today. Uh, I could dress it up, and I'm just going to be blunt. This is a mental health break on my part. I think that it's important to acknowledge this openly. I need to take a step back for the next week. We will be back two weeks from now, and we will be doing our Patreon shows but there will be no regular episode of Swag next week. I need to get well. So, with that in mind, let us proceed to the topic of the week. Our topic this week is Keepers. What is it that's going to keep a game on your shelf year after year, purge after purge? So I decided to talk about this only because of what I said at the very beginning, because the end of the year is coming up, and I know what's left to come out and what I want to play. And what I've already played. And like you said, the purge must happen because the buildup has happened. And I need to rethink how I choose which games I'm going to keep. Well, you're actually in a more constrained position than I am in a way. And a less constrained position in another way. You're more constrained because you've basically decided that you're going to keep your entire collection on a single Calax. Is that accurate? Yes, that is correct. 
Yeah, and a lot of people do it that way. I, I, I'm in a position where I have a basement and I just hurl things into the basement and, you know, sooner or later, maybe they're going to amalgamate, become sentient, and then take revenge on me. Uh, but I, I don't have like a, a specific constraint. My, my space requirements are a little more flexible. I'm more constrained in another way because conceptually, in my head, I don't really have a collection. I don't really have any belongings past what I have with me in Vancouver. I can't tell whether this is how I deal with trauma or if this is a symptom of my trauma. I don't know. Six of one, half of the other. Porque no los dos. So in my head, my collection only consists of a couple dozen titles. Because that's just all that I have here. But... <laughs> I, I don't know what it's like to own a couch, for example. What is it to own a couch? I don't... Anyway, setting all that aside. <laughs> I do, and I do think that is floating above me, too, because it, it is, at the moment, well above the calyx, right? With yes. The, you know, the, the, the... So there's a bunch of stuff down here, and there's the calyx upstairs that is full, and I think I'm just overly worried about getting back to where I was before, like, the double purge, you know what I mean? Where there's, <laughs> like, stuff in bins and stuff in boxes and, and where it gets just too much to actually do anything with. Right. Where it becomes just such a huge chore to manage. I honestly... So, so a lot of people feel burdened by their physical possessions and i completely respect that i'm not i'm not saying that that's a, a a silly way to look at things i just don't have that perspective except when i move when i move or travel case depending i do feel burdened by my physical possessions but i feel burdened by like having underwear so like it's not, it's not like the huge collection or the fact that my collection is too big causes me to feel a sense of burden by my possessions they all feel burdensome at that point so I'm sympathetic to that that feeling. There's some people that say, oh no, I've got, you know, a triple digit game collection. I'm now being hemmed in by my, I, I don't own my stuff. My stuff owns me. I know what that feels like and I know it feels terrible. I just don't feel that way unless I'm in a position of moving and then there's no level of minimalism that I've experienced where I don't feel that way. Yeah, and I'm thinking that back then if I, if I had, per or if all that stuff was actually mine, like had I purchased it, had I curated it myself, it might have not been a problem. But seen as the about fifty percent of it was people just dumping their stuff when they moved, or or you know getting it from clubs that have closed down and just amassing this huge amount of stuff, maybe that just made it out of control and made it feel like a like a burden as opposed to something enjoyable. So first, Mark, I have some reasons. So the worst reasons why you should keep games. Sure. So, like, say an expansion is like you're, it was a game you're going to get rid of, but then they announce there's an expansion. So you keep it just because <laughs> you want to try the expansion. Sometimes I agree with you that that's generally a bad call. Rarely it's an okay call. I think of some of those truly transformative expansions, like Civilization and New Dawn. Civilization and New Dawn was, I think, a fundamentally flawed game, which became markedly better after the expansion. I still didn't end up keeping it, but if you were kind of, the, the problem is, is like expansions are so rarely that good or that transformative. And sometimes it's hard to tell in advance, but yeah, I think overall, if you're planning on ditching something, uh, and especially if it's a game like, I don't know, Sentinels or Thunderstone or where expand, you know what the expansion is going to look like. They're all just more stuff. Yeah. Don't let the expansion hold you back. So maybe you haven't got around to playing it yet. Maybe you got this game while you got a bunch of other games and it just went up on your shelf and then it unfortunately never got played. And so you just keep it there 
collecting dust because you haven't played it yet. But you've read lots of things. You know you're going to hate it. (laughs) I have received a number of games in trade or purchased used games that were in shrink, even though they weren't advertised as such. And... Initially, I thought that, that was kind of weird. It's like, why would you trade something away, or why why would you get rid of it? If you haven't played it, but I've definitely come away to your your way of thinking. If you're not inclined to play it, and you have reason to, don't force yourself. Just don't. And lastly, you think to yourself, "Well, I just paid too damn much for this stuff. I'm Ooh. not getting rid of it." Ouch. <laughs> Mentioning those splatter games in particular, of course. I actually had a much higher threshold in mind. I used to always keep any game. That was effectively around a rating of eight or higher on Board Game Geek. So I, I, not to get down the cul-de-sac of rating systems, because all rating systems, other than the Pi rating system, are fundamentally deficient. But eight for me is on the Board Game Geek scale where a game is really excellent. And, or at the very least, very, very good. There are lots of 7.5s that I will suggest and seek out. Uh, and indeed, a lot of 7s or 7.5s that I own and will keep. But I used to think, if I rated an 8 or higher, I should hold on to it. Not specifically 8 or higher, but I was using that as a proxy for, for my sensation of that. And uh, over the course of the past year or so, and I think we'll get into to, to the reasons why I've changed my mind on this a little bit later, but I've abandoned that principle. And as a result, there's a number of games that I've gotten rid of, and I'm kind of okay with that. I mean, a couple couple of games... Like Goa, for example. Goa is a great Euro game. I highly recommend it if you can get past the whole colonialism thing. Rhinelander is an excellent, excellent Reiner Knizia tiling game. And of course, I'm very weak to tiling it. Wabash Cannibal is a great Cube Rails game. Anyway, I could go on. There's a bunch of, of games that I rate eight or higher on Board Game Geek that I have gotten rid of. And initially, I was feeling a bit nervous about it, but now I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm, I'm all right with having divested those from my collection. So games that I want to keep in my in my collection for this year are the ones I want to revisit because there's lots of churn at the moment. Like there's lots of time playing games on tabletop simulator or online or reading rule books. So when you get around to playing the game, sometimes you only get a chance to play it once or, or there's many different uh, versions or add-ons like the game, like Onk, right? The Onk is this huge beast of different scenarios and different gods and different combinations that you have to, that you really want to, you know, dive deep into and try out all these different combinations to see how they play out. But is that parasitic on Onk's fundamental quality, though? Like, again, this kind of highlights back to this whole issue of don't hold on to a game just because their expansion's coming out. If either of us were cold on the fundamental experience of Ankh, I don't know that it would be entirely rational to say, but I need to explore how it plays with the Pharaoh expansion or how it plays with his other gods or these other scenarios. Oh, no, 100%. It's only because I think the game is fantastic that, you know, I want to return. Like, I want to put it up. Like, I'm, like I'm not sure if... That's a good question. I'm saying I'm not sure. I, I think I still think the fundamental part is just good enough on its own, but the fact that there are all these combinations makes it that much more so. Sure, but I, what, I, what I'm saying is, and this is just an open question, I don't know what the answer is, is it the case that we want to keep it around because we want to explore all those combinations, or is it the case that we want to explore all those combinations because it's so great, and because it's so great we want to keep it around? Or can we even draw a distinction between those two things? Not sure. These are deep questions, Walker. These are deep questions, Mark. No, I think Ankh on its own is good enough, but Maybe it's more of, I want to get back to Ankh sooner than the rest because of it. 
Well, you shouldn't have sent me my copy then. You should have just sat on it and laughed at me. I know I should have just laughed at you. Agreed. Your fundamental problem, Walker, is that you're too nice. I've said this over and over. I actually had Siege of Rundar in a box this week. And I was Anyway. Um, <laughs> so, other games that I put in this category are uh, Freeman Freeze Free Time. You know, you and I played it that one time, and I really want to get back to it as well. I thought there was a, a lot there, and it was a very interesting sort of concept and idea. I wouldn't give it another try. Bonfire, I've only got to try once. Hmm. Well, that's uh, actually a good, I, that, that's a good dyad, actually. Because I agree with you that a reason to hold on to a game and for it to escape a purge is precisely because you want to you go back to it, you want to explore it. And I think it's entirely reasonable whenever you're undergoing a purge or starting a sale or undergoing a whole bunch of trades to say, look, it's entirely possible, possibly even likely, maybe even nearly certain that I'm going to want to get rid of these things, but not yet. I need to go back to that second uh, second or third play. But I actually think those are two good examples on the opposite ends of that criterion. Bonfire I want to go back to because I'm not sure how well it navigates that uh, system mastery versus quality decision-making stretch. Free Time by Friedman Fries. Friedman Fries is a talented guy, but I don't know that there's much there there. And so that would be a classic example of I'd be happy to have it sit around on my shelf maybe if I had lots of lots of room on my shelf but it's a relatively vanilla worker placement game one relatively vanilla worker placement game is as good as any other so why not let it participate in the churn true I, but i mean just after one play i just you know i just want to get that experience just so i i you know have that know what it's all about type thing i you know i don't know if i got it all in one play sure but but and, let, and, let me sorry let me elaborate then or at least clarify what i'm talking about the more generic a game is, the less likely it is it's going to survive any of these calls, even if it's really, really high quality. Like, I made a joke about Furnace, about how comically stereotypical its action structure is. One of the reasons why I got rid of Goa, or at least I was okay with getting rid of Goa, despite how, how good it is, the structure of Goa is the same, almost stereotypical Euro structure. Auction off some stuff run your economy, auction off some stuff, run your economy. And so regardless of what quality it is, if you're going to have, uh, uh, if you're going to look at, make serious questions about what is going to survive purges, well, if it's got some serious generic elements, eh, doesn't bode well for it. Yeah, and that's what the these last two games, why I put them at the end, pretty well fall into that category too, is Merchant's Cove and Denia, right? They were just two games that I wanted to hang on to just to explore a little bit more. Merchant's Cove, mostly because there's all sorts of different uh, characters you can play. And I just want to see what they did with... with uh, there's one that's almost like a roll-and-write system, the Oracle. And then there's one... Uh, the the Sorry, the Innkeeper, where you're actually using the meeples and manipulating them around. So I wanted to oh. try those out. Yeah, it's, that seems very interesting as well. Well, that seems cool because Merchant's Cove, look, if you like the fundamental formula, absolutely. Merchant's Cove is the kind of thing where it's like, I want to try all the factions or all the different player powers once, or at least most of the ones that look interesting. My key problem with the game was that there's this game that we're all playing, and then we go off and do our own little thing, and never the twain shall meet. So if one of the roles actually gets to interface with the main board in a substantive way, past just, well, I have a different way of generating my own unique goods... That's something I would be interested in seeing, or at least hearing your thoughts about. And Clinic Deluxe as well, for the same reason of Ankh. There's so many modules and so many different ways to play it. I'm wondering if there's something that makes it a little bit more interesting or takes away, you know, uh, you being a parking attendant. <laughs> All right. <laughs> 
Not so much a parking attendant as a parking lot magnate, I guess. Ooh, that could be the next Splatter game. There you go. And then there are games where the theme and just the overall experience carries it. And this will be games like the games that are still on my shelf for a reason right now are are the, the Goonies, Tidal Blades, and I think uh, Siege of Rundara is going to fall into that same category as well. The gameplay in Siege of Rundara isn't like breathtaking or or you know, revolutionary, but just the experience and the ease of the teach and the fact that everyone's enjoyed it so far that's played it. Uh, we'll keep it on the shelf. And you're analogizing that to Tidal Blades? I find that strange because the Tidal Blades rules explanation is not exactly simple. No, no, not the ease of play, the the, the experience, just the overall experience and the, you know, the, the way it looks and the, the theme of the whole experience of Tidal Blades. Okay. I have two categories of games, and I'm curious if these factor at all into your collecting decisions. One of them is, have you ever gotten rid of a game, regretted it, and then had an opportunity to get it back at a relatively low cost or burden and then gotten it back? While you're thinking about the answer to that question, I can say I've done this a number of times. Uh, so Power Struggle, for example, I just took because you were getting rid of. The same is true of Clash of the Gladiators. These are games that I traded away and then regretted it. Uh, then there are games that I've actually gone out of my way to reacquire because I, I kind of regretted having got rid of. Those are In the Shadow of the Emperor and Thunderbolt Apache Leader, two very different games. And I've also regretted getting rid of Pulsar 2849. Very recently, we had a uh, very, very sacred event in Kingston, which is when our friend Asimi starts selling off some of his old games. Because the way Asimi does a purge is Asimi looks at, at the games that he, he wants to sell. And he says, okay, okay this is a game that is worth, uh, say, $50. I could probably sell it for about 40 I could move it really quickly for 25 So I'll sell it for $2 and a smile. And so when Asimi does his his game sales, uh, the local gamers descend like locusts. <laughs> and he was getting into Pulsar 2849. I'd been wanting to get back to it anyway, because just parenthetically about how the way I collect games, I've said this before and I'll say it again, I'm currently in the position that I think you don't need more than one Vladimir Suki game. I think that that's the most you could possibly need. And for me, Pulsar 20, 2849 is the one I want to stick stick with. Yeah, it was too bad that someone bought it before you got it. That that was the that was a shame. I told you it was mine, Walker, and then you said it I, was mine, and you said you got it for me, Walker. I, what is it again? Possession is one hundred percent the law. Yes, <laughs> I think that it was a personal slight and a direct attack on me that Asimi did his sale when I was out of town. This is unacceptable. <laughs> he should have waited. Do you have any games you've gotten rid of and then gotten back? Yes. Well, Tigers and Freddy's, I I got rid of it in a way. That's and true. You were nice enough, nice enough to uh, to get me a copy back. That, well, yes, you gifted your copy of Tigers and Euphrates to the Shucks Library because it was a serious, serious gap in the library. And yes, I and then you did ask me to get you another copy, so that is a good example. No, I can I cannot think of another game. That I got rid of for any reason and had to get a copy back again. That's fair. You are much better at uh, looking forward in the future. You're also much less of a compulsive collector than I am. And I'm not saying this is a rational set of behaviors. It's just something I've done a number of times. Second question. Are there games you keep around in your collection purely because you know one of the local, local gamers really likes it? Yes, at the moment I do. But that is that is ending. That is one of my things that has changed. Oh, no I'm more, no huh? longer... No more. They are now gone. There are a few sort of risk type uh, troops on a map game that that have 
that have survived the purge and a lot of the old some of the older sort of war type games that I enjoy some of them but not not these others and they will now be gone as well. I've come to the position now where if there's a game that I would normally be inclined to keep around because I know someone local really really likes it, I'm more inclined to just say, well, either you can take it from me and have it or it's gone. <laughs> now, sometimes I've actually been in the position of having gotten rid of a game and I didn't know that I should have kept it around. I still remember that time walker. I remember very vividly when I mentioned that I'd traded away the old Artipia Games version of Project Elite. You looked at me like I'd just stabbed your your mother right in front of you. It was I I oh <laughs> the betrayal in your face. Yes, oh. yes, it was awful. It was a sad sad day, Mark. And then there's uh, the copy of Kingdom Death Monster. I knew that Huey would never forgive me if I got rid of it. And I, you know, we were just so terminally against that kind of sprawling campaign experience. And we played a lot of Kingdom Death Monster. And so I just said, you know, you want it around? It's yours now. Take it. Yeah, that's what I'm, that is, that is where I'm leaning towards as well now. Because the industry is opening up a little bit more. A lot of uh, families are hearing about board games. A lot of people are asking, so I'm I'm trying to keep more games that I can lend out. So games that are easy to teach, games that play under 60 minutes, like like Calico, like Fort, like Brew, games like this that I can just send out and not worry about, keep minimal track of who has them, and keep them rotating around. Games like, uh, what else do I have here? Furnace is another great one that you brought up, like easy to teach, shows people like these new mechanics. Uh, Alien Fate of the Nostromo, like I said, it's already been lent out twice. Oh, interesting. Games that are supported on Board Game Geek, like they have a explanation video. I know you hate them, but you know, for people that are new to the industry, they're very helpful to get like sort of an overview on how these newer games work. And then the sometimes the rule book makes more sense to them. I, I hate them for me. I should be very, very clear. This is not some gatekeepery nonsense or some sort of prioritizing one way of processing information over another. It's just not conducive for how I like to be able to manage teaching a game. For other people, it's their way into the hobby, and anything that brings people into the hobby, I think, is for the good. Stop making me look bad, Walker. I do a good enough job of that already. Big event games. They're not going to happen anymore. I'm done with uh, no trying to wait for that to happen. Yeah. So are you going to get rid of War Room? That's what I mean. I have War Room and Game of Thrones on here. I just I just don't know if I need so many of these giant sort of all-day event games. So this is actually a, a, an, important, I, an important distinction for me in terms of what I'm going to keep and what I'm going to get rid of. I am willing to keep games around in my collection, certainly some of them, based more or less purely on nostalgia for past experiences. In some very narrow cases. An example of that is La Révolution Française. I'm probably not ever going to con convince locals in Kingston to play a six-hour, six-player game about the French Revolution. I don't think that's going to happen. But I'm never going to get rid of it. I still have such fond memories of it, and I have such enthusiasm for the time period. On the other hand, if you look at completed campaign or legacy games, I have no problem getting rid of them. And I don't know why. It's strange. Um, <clears throat> I think it's some sort of weird conceptual block. It's like, oh, well, you know, this copy of Pandemic Legacy is done now. This copy of The King's Dilemma is done now. Whereas La Révolution Française, 
I my affection for it is largely based on the same criteria, namely à la souvenir de temps perdu to uh, to bastardize the the, the phrase. Uh, but nonetheless, I still I'm still going to keep it around. I I am going to keep some event games though, even if there's only a vanishingly small likelihood of playing them. Civilization comes to mind. Mega Civilization comes to mind. Those are never leaving my collections. Although I could probably, in all honesty, do with fewer than the number of copies of Civilization that I have, because I think now I have five copies on top of Megasiv. Maybe I should start paring that down. Could be an idea. Yeah. And then in the same vein, how many campaign system games do I need? Absolutely. Do I need do I need the full set of of uh Descent version 2.0? Do I need all of Imperial Salt? Do I need all of Cyan Tempora? Do I need all of Reich Busters? Do I need the list goes on and on, Mark. It does. So not only are all these that I already have, but there's the ones that come out on a daily basis on Kickstarter. So I, am I not just going to want to try one of the newer ones anyway? So why do I need to keep these older ones? Are you going to keep any of them? I'm I'm sure I will. Sure. I think at that this point, is just, though... This is just talk, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, look. But even if you're only going to listen to the angels of your better nature, I think there's a strong argument in favor of keeping your favorite of those things. If you're going to put them all in a bucket and say they're fundamentally of a piece, and I think there is le- le- a legitimate basis for saying so, I think it would be entirely reasonable to say, look, I'm probably not going to be running many campaigns of Imperial Assault ever again, but it's got a good skirmish mode, and it's my favorite of the lot, so it's worth keeping around. I think that's a reasonable position. I just, agree. Just picking Imperial Assault as a random example. I'm not saying it has True. to be that one. And now when I try to, you know, trade my Descent away, thanks for, thanks uh, Fantasy Flight Games for bringing out, you know, 3.0, you know, two months after the last expansion. <laughs> I've also gotten a lot better on a similar vein of getting rid of other games in a in a very particular system. For example, I've gotten rid of Priests of Raw because it's very similar to Raw. Some people prefer Priests of Raw, and I respect that, and it's an actually interesting variation. Uh, similarly, the Pandemic games. A lot of people have, you know, all the Pandemic games, but I've got Core Pandemic and I've got Fall of Rome, so I don't think I need any more than that, and so I'm happy with that. This doesn't apply necessarily to other games that are arguably in the same system, like Cube Rails, for example. Maybe that's a distinction without a difference, but it's where I'm sitting. And it certainly doesn't apply to some categories of game like, you know, Reiner Knizia tile layers, because to me, they're all very, very different and distinct. And uh, to that mind, if I ever got a chance to get another copy of Samurai, Samurai could very well be another game that I once got rid of and then got another copy. But I'm, I'm fickle like that. I'm mercurial. But when it comes to, to Euros, I actually think that there's a good way to articulate what is needed for something to be a genuine keeper in my scenario. And this is the Andreas Stedding metric. So Andreas Stedding is the designer of Hansa Tonka, Stouffer Dynasty, and Gugong. And I will happily play any of those games. But the only one that's got a permanent seat in my collection is Hansa Teutonica. The other ones could come or go. I don't really care. I don't even own Gugong. I'm happy to just have you around. But if you got rid of Gugong, I would not cry tears. Despite the fact that I, I enjoy it and I think it's a solid game. Same thing with Stouffer Dynasty. I've brought it to game nights. I've specifically recommended it. It's, it's a very, very well done game. But uh, it's not even that they're similar. I'm not saying that you only need one Andreas Stedding. I'm saying that that's the kind of quality of, of bar that I'm talking about. Hansa Teutonica is just such a pure expression of Euro awesomeness 
that even very excellent Euro games like Stouffer Dynasty and Gugong are ones that I'd be happy to see cycle out of my collection. Because just with the certainty that there's always going to be lots of very excellent Euro games coming in and out of my collection, just by virtue of my interests, if not even my job. So I guess I think that's a good way to transition into the final question here is, what reasons for holding on to a certain game do you think have have changed over the last year and why? So do you think that over the last year your reasons to keep games has changed. And I think the, what you said about me having Gugong is one of the big things. Like uh, there are uh, quite a few more people here in our local city that have started, you know, collecting games and you and I have collections and I feel a, a lot less need to have such a large collection because I could just, I know that this person has the game or that person has the game. I can just borrow it or I know I'm going to at least be able to play it the once, which is mostly what what I want. I want to experience the game, see what it's all about, and then and then I'm, I'm good. And the fact that I we, we just talked about it, uh, the fact that I was keeping games for a particular group because usually it was the same people playing. We, have our, we had our Saturday nights and the same people were getting together. So I was not only buying games, a certain way, but keeping games for certain people. And now that I have so many different groups, like the, uh, we, we stream, we have the Friday group, which is like heavy euros. We have the online group, which we play all like the crazy board game arena stuff. We have the campaign, a wholly different group that we play campaigns with on Sunday. So there's so many different groups that I don't need to curate my collection for particular people anymore. I, it, it depends, for me, it depends on who's got the game. And for me over the course of the past year, and it has been in the past year, I am perfectly willing to accept that it's, that if you've got a copy, I probably don't need a copy. The number of games where I wouldn't feel that way has now become vanishingly small. It used to be for me, if the game was good enough, if I wanted it, I would have it even if you had a copy. But now for me, it would have to be truly, truly in like the top 20 for me in order for me to track down a copy if you already had one. And that is a genuine change. I don't know why that change has come, come for me. I'm not a genuinely less acquisitive person now. It's not like before we didn't have constant access to each other's collections. It wasn't like before, more than a year ago, if I said, hey, Walker, can I borrow this game because I just want to ogle the pieces for a while. You would have thrust it in my hands before I was finished with the sentence. But uh, I, I now am more comfortable with this idea of distributed collections as far as you are concerned. As far as other people, not so much. But I, I am definitely okay with that in a way that I wasn't before. And I also think that the older games have been a lot more accessible to get. Like before, if there was a game that you wanted and it was older, sometimes it was more difficult to, to acquire or find out where you could get it. But now with, you know, the board game geek market and trading and a bunch of Facebook groups, I think it's if there's something that you really want, then there's no problem getting it anymore. So it's easy to give games, you know, get rid of games. And if you ever want it back, you just pick it up. It's weird. I actually feel the opposite way. Back when I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which was about six or seven years ago now, the, the ease of this buying things secondhand or of trading games was so excellent that I really felt that the fluidity of being able to acquire and dis dispense of games was so, so easy. In Canada, especially during the pandemic, the border being closed, I found it much much harder. And so the change to me is largely attitudinal rather than in terms of the market. And part of this actually is, is through Patreon. The, the fact that we can send games to people who we know are enthusiasts, who 
I mean, maybe they resell them immediately after we send them to them. I don't know. But quite frankly, I don't care. But the fact that we have a community of people that are invested in the show and we know our listeners and who want to try a game in part because they've heard us talk about it, that has definitely made me more keen to be able to just say, fine, I think it's still great. And if I had unlimited resources and unlimited time, I would still play this game all the time. But here, you should have it. And as a result, I'm, I'm more comfortable with letting go of really quality products. And again, I'm not 100% sure why this shift has happened over the course of the past year, but it definitely definitely has. Well, that's going to do it for us for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at thegamesyoulike. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon, Twitch, and sowronggames.com. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bickey. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Welcome, dear listeners, once again to Swag Presents Masterpiece Theater. This week, we are talking about The Legend of Korra Season 3 in honor of His Grace, the Reverend Dr. Dr. Vincent, Earl of Diesel, Esquire, OBE. Walker, do you have any thoughts on Season 3 of Korra? Because I have a lot of thoughts about Season oh, yeah, 3 maybe, of Korra. Oh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't say anything to save time so you can get everything out. Well, no, 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 I go ahead. I, sure, I just want to make sure people know that this will be our last installment of our Avatar series. We, in fact, will not be talking about the live-action motion picture, just to be clear. What, you have, you have no thoughts about Korra Season 4? I have lots of thoughts about Korra Season 4. Did they go? Okay, I am confused then. So, yes, Korra Season 3. Back to more silliness. Go ahead, Mark. I will just comment off of what you say. Okay, first off, I just want to issue one minor addendum to last week's discussion. Even though I was so grossly disappointed by Legend of Korra Season 2, there was one element that I adored, which was Avatar Aang. Great person, terrible parent. I loved those bits where his kids would get together and be like, Dad was terrible. Great guy, saved the world. Awful, awful parent. I thought that was, it was wonderful. It was well done. I liked it. So, okay, so here we are, Season 3. Mako looks so much happier. He's out of two semi-abusive relationships. And honestly, in reflection, I really do think that those were semi-abusive relationships. So congratulations, Legend of Korra. You finally found a love triangle even I couldn't get behind. I thought I would like all of them. You've proven me wrong. Well done. Here's my big problem with, with, with Season 3. Until Episode 9, we have nothing about Zaheer. We don't know a single thing about him other than he's bad and does bad things. And this is utterly uninteresting to me. And then it turns out, this, the fight that, that eventually coalesces is, I want balance, whatever the hell that means, and oh my goodness, does that show up with a vengeance in season four, versus, I want to kill the Avatar for reasons. And what becomes clear is this franchise, outside of a global war, can't really find a compelling framing uh, other than season one of Korra. That's one of the things I loved about season one of Korra. The villains made sense. It was They were frightening, but at the same time, vaguely sympathetic. You understood where they were coming from. But... Last uh, last Airbender, there was somebody trying to conquer the entire world and murder a whole bunch of people. Fine, oppose them. That makes sense. But here we have this guy who, before season nine, we don't even know what the hell he's doing. I mean, so 
it's completely wasted because they could have tried to make him interesting, and instead he's just this random cipher who does awesome flips, which don't get me wrong. The fight scenes were amazing, as befits Henry Rollins. Henry Rollins' voices here. Love me some Henry Rollins, both as a musician and as a poet and as an actor. Uh, and I think, honestly, the Tenzin versus Zaheer fight is probably my favorite fight of the entire series, because not only is it brilliantly animated and awesome things happen, but it's one of my personal favorite genres of uh, fight choreography, which is the old advisor type finally lets loose and starts wailing on everybody. And there were just these bits where... Uh, Zaheer would do an awesome thing, like he'd do some airbending, and then he'd do a backflip, and then he'd jump off of a whole bunch of things. Meanwhile, Tenzin would be, be like, ah, I'm a better airbender than you are. I'm just going to airbend to where I need to go. And then they'd fight again, and Tenzin would overwhelm. I thought it was great. It was just really well done, and it was one of those fights that shows elements of the characters as they're actually fighting on top of just the cool choreography. Anyway, what do you think, Walker? I'm just confused, Mark. Why? That's all. Because I thought Legend of Korra was only three episodes, three seasons long. Nope. Season three was a hero. Season four is uh, Kuvira. When they go into the spirit world? No. Spirit world is season two. No. When they go, when they, it's when the, when he, she goes with the other waterbender and they go to seal the two. That's yin season and yang, two. The, that's season two. Season one is the equalists. Season two is the spirit world where the, the portals get opened and then closed and opened and closed, and she's incredibly manipulated by her uncle. Season three is Zaheer. Season four is Kuvira, who tries to conquer the world, or at least conquer the Earth Kingdom. I'm going to have to watch season three then. Okay. Do you want to hear what what I would have done with season three, my version of season three, Walker? Yes. Okay, so this is the Mark cut. And by the way, I almost never do this with shows. I know some people who are constantly like rewriting and reorganizing shows or movies that disappoint them. I almost never do this. But with season three of Korra, I found it so frustrating. Here's the thing, Walker. Not all shows or movies have to be about politics. All right? If you're going to make your show about politics, have something to say that's coherent about politics. Zaheer is an anarchist, which we only find out in episode nine. And he's like, well, clearly everyone should be an anarchist. The rulers are douchebags. To which the, the show's only response is, nuh-uh, and this is not a satisfying dialogue. But it would have been so easy to fix. The bones were there. The elements were there. So the way I would have done it is, first you see, uh, like you could have started with maybe an, a flashback of the abduction attempt when Zaheer was and his friends were jailed. So like... You could have seen them be very brutal towards the White Lotus, but not against anybody else. Because, again, why he's trying to kill the Avatar doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. If you're the Red Lotus, you probably want to convert the Avatar to your way of thinking. Convince them that that's their, that, that version of balance is the appropriate one. You could have seen Zahir first at the Air Temple. When he infiltrates the Air Temple, he just shows up. He's some guy. He's a new airbender. He's like, hey, I'm a dude. And everybody would be impressed with his obvious skill and for his respect for the Air Nomad culture and thought. And the history, you know, you could have Korra and Zaheer actually have dialogue and discuss before he's revealed to be a villain. And Zaheer could be like, well, you know, how do you feel about the fact that, you know, the Earth Kingdom is run by a totalitarian douchebag? Or how do you feel about the fact that we almost had the world end because of absolute monarchy? Or it wouldn't have to be that ham-fisted, but, you know, you could introduce this to anarchism in that context. And Korra could be like, well, I, I don't agree with the way you see the world. 
And maybe she wouldn't even be able to say why, because she doesn't think about politics in those terms, and that's fine. But at least you introduce the idea. And then you start seeing all the terrible political actors in the world. You see the queen being a tyrant. You see the president being feckless and irresponsible. And so then by the time we see those things, we've already been introduced to the alternative point of view. And then when he murders the Earth Queen, and by the way, I found it hilarious how as a kid's show, they could never say the words kill or dead. They're always like, he took down or violently took down. The word takedown is used so often in this show. When, and that could mean murder. That could mean kidnapping. And he never, anyway, kid show, whatever. I'm I'm not going to blame them for that. Take and it's your only, pick. Right. And only when he violently murders her, and this by the... Again, I criticize the show's handling of bloodbending. It's like, oh, bloodbending is inherently evil. Why? It doesn't have to be. And one of the things that I thought of at the time is like, airbending could be used to suffocate somebody, and that would be incredibly excruciating and evil. But we're not talking about airbending necessarily being cruel and terrible. Anyway... So he, so when, when he murders the queen, that's when he would be the antagonist. Then you could frame the post-assassination chaos as being representative of both positions. Namely, justifying anarchy, because obviously if the fallout of the absolute monarchy is this chaos, that's bad. Similarly, you could also frame it as being justification of defense of the monarchy, some sort of Hayekian conservatism. This could have all been done very, very easily, but it's presented without context. And so all we have are a series of things that happen. A series of fights. Then Zahir's failure to convince Kor of the legitimacy of, of the position of the Red Lotus is what animates his attempt to kill her, rather than him just being, I want to burn it all down and murder everybody, which doesn't even really work if we don't know why he's doing it for the first eight episodes. All of it was there. All the elements could have been done. But instead, all that we just have is a series of random crap that happens. And like the in, in episode nine, there was the hint of what the show could have been when Zahir was presented vaguely sympathetically. But then they dropped that half a second a uh, afterwards and like, oh no, let's just have fight the fight scenes now. Balance, 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 whatever balance. Let's let's defend the monarchy, even though we're not really anyway. It didn't. And again, season three didn't have to be about politics. It didn't have to be about anarchists versus absolute monarchy. But that's how they framed it. They just botched the execution anyway. That's my view of season three, Walker. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch it because I'm, sh I'm sure I'll have more comments on season four next week. I think being optimistic with the benefit of a little bit of distance, some months or years, I might go back and be able to be more kind or understanding the season three. Or maybe even they were trying to get to some of these things that I'm complaining were absent, but I wasn't able to see it at the time. I think maybe on a rewatch, season three will, will, will make me happier. But honestly, it just left me disappointed. See you in two weeks. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.